Alright, today we're going to be back in the book of James. So we'll be in James, uh, James chapter 2. Turn with me there. James chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 26. And here we come to probably one of the more difficult passages in the book of James. And it's a difficult passage because it most directly impacts uh, the question of how is one saved? How are we saved? Right. And that's a fundamental question of religion. And if you, you survey world religions, right, they all answer that question. How is one saved? And more than that, though, right, each have their own definition of what it means to be saved. So, for instance, if we look at Buddhism, uh, salvation looks like enlightenment. Uh, that is escaping from the cycle of reincarnation. And so in order to be saved, how is one saved? The, the answer to that question is, uh, well, you get rid of worldly attachments. You kind of you become a, a Vulcan. You get rid of emotion. No, I don't know that you quite do that, but. Right, get rid of worldly attachments. Um, you work on increasing your knowledge of, of the world and of things, and you, you you strive for enlightenment and whatever that takes. Um, you eat a lot of grass, I think. You know, juice juice up some grass. I, I don't know, something like that. It seems like a goes with it, but maybe that's just like the American brand version of that. Uh, probably not what they do uh, in other parts of the world, but. The reality of this world, as we see in the scripture, is that we need much more than enlightenment. In fact, we had a whole age of enlightenment, and it didn't seem to do a whole lot of good for us as a, as a people, as a culture. We need forgiveness of sin. We need to please a holy God, and we need a holiness without which one will not see the Lord, as we see in Hebrews 12 of 14. Paul writes... Right? What does the scripture say to us? Paul writes, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? So if salvation is the forgiveness of our sins, the appearing before a holy God as one holy and blameless and above reproach, as we see in Galatians, Paul says we need to call on the name of the Lord. Well, what does it mean then to call on the name of the Lord? That's an important question, right? Does this just mean, is it like some kind of magical incantation? We just kind of recite these words, Oh Lord God, I call upon you. And then that's it. Like, well, that's it. We're saved. No, it takes faith. It takes belief. It takes trust. It takes trusting faith in the Lord God. Paul writes to the Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2.8, familiar verse to us, I'm sure. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So salvation is grace, salvation is the gift of God, it's not of not our own doing. And as we come to our passage this morning, we'll see then why it is this, this question, this passage presents so many difficulties uh, as we come to it. Because this intersection, we come to this intersection of faith and works. And how are we to understand salvation in the terms of faith and works? What does salvation produce? And so today I want us to see that James instructs us that a good faith produces good works. So a good faith produces 
good works. So let's read our passage and then we'll try and tackle the question, uh, this difficult passage in the letter of James. And the word of the Lord says, and starting in verse 14 of chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way also, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So if you remember the letter of James, James is writing to the churches in and around Palestine and Syria. He's writing to instruct them on a number of matters that concern him. Uh, James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And so he's in a position uh, to speak to these churches. And he feels a, an especial burden to speak to the issues within these churches. James has a pastor's heart and a pastor's care. And we see that in his letter, right? He is addressing uh, matters of concern in a pastoral way. Uh, and so James has a pastoral heart for these Christians, even if distance separates them. And this recurring theme that we've seen so far in this letter, one of these recurring themes is this issue that these Christians will somehow be satisfied with a double-minded obedience, right? With a two-souled obedience, that is, in one sense, they say, I want to worship God, I want to follow God. In another sense, they do just the opposite of that, right? This is a, something we've been seeing along and along, right? When we talked about the issue of wisdom, uh, and James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And then he continues on and says, but don't let him ask with a doubting mind, tossed to and fro, Right? If you're going to trust in God and you believe that God is going to give you wisdom, believe God's going to give you wisdom. Don't don't say, God, give me wisdom, and then say, well, he's never going to do that. Right? Believe God, trust in God, and hold to God. He wants his brothers and sisters in Christ to remain steadfast, stand firm. That's why they need wisdom. Right? He says there's various trials coming. You need wisdom to face those various trials. You need the Spirit of God to face those various trials. And we know he says in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who reigns steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Right? He, that's what he wants for these, these Christians. Right? He wants them to stand the test. He wants them to receive eternal life. He wants them to enter into the glories of heaven. He wants them to be saved. 
More immediately, in chapter 2, James has been dealing with the sin of partiality or the sin of favoritism. And in writing about this sin, he reminds us of the reality of the law of God, that it's a unified whole, right? That's, that's one of the conclusions he draws. In James 2.10, he says, forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. So if you fail in the law of, by showing partiality, if you fail and you sin against God and his people by showing partiality, you've broken the whole law. So you stand condemned. You stand guilty. And as we work through those verses, right, the, this, this idea of law that James is dealing with is not the law of Moses alone. It's not merely the law of Moses. But it's the law, the commands of God, as understood, as interpreted, as right, exposited by Jesus. It's the royal law. It's the law of the kingdom of God. And, and this is the law that has implications for the way that we live. Right? That's, again, what James has been saying all along. The commands of God have implications for you. If you say you're saved, if you say you believe in God, if you say you trust in God, if you say you follow after God, then that means something. It's not a meaningless statement. And it means something for how you ought live. And so let's begin unpacking this issue, this question of faith and works. And let's see first the question of faith in verse 14, the question of faith. And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Right. Again, we have a new topic of concern. How do we know it's a new topic of concern? Because we see James use this device that he has used often in this letter thus far. He addresses his audience. He says, my brothers or my brothers and sisters. Right. So he's addressing a new issue. He's addressing his readership. He is speaking to the church. He's speaking to Christians here. He is not speaking to non-believers, right? Unbelievers. He's speaking to the church. And what is his question this time? He asks, what good is a spoken faith without visible works? And then he rejoins that question with, is this the kind of faith that can save? And here we want to make a note uh, because the KJV, the King James Version, renders that last question as, can faith save him? And it leaves out that directive that or this, as we see in other, you know, modern English translations. Uh, that kind of interpretation makes it sound like, or that kind of translation makes it sound like that James is calling into question the necessity of faith for salvation. Uh, we should probably rather understand it as the modern English translations render it, that kind of faith or this kind of faith. In other words, what James is calling, what James is asking here is something like, can the kind of faith that is only spoken about and not lived out save a man? So that's what James's second question here, right? If we wanted to expand that a little bit. So he says, can that faith save him? And so the issue that James seems to be addressing here is this kind of faith that is spoken about but not acted upon. It's the kind of faith that we, we declare that we're a believer in Christ and yet nothing about us changes. It's the kind of faith that is actionless. There seems to be those living within the church, within the churches to which James is writing, who acknowledge Christ, but live just like everybody else does. Walk just like everybody else does. Speaks like everybody else does. Dresses like everybody else does. And again, that 
intersects with our own day. It intersects with our own lives because this is a fundamental question that we have to understand about salvation. What does salvation entail? What does faith entail? What are the implications of it? Can we say rightly, and the reason I say this is because we are in a context uh, uh, that is uh, filled with the kind of preaching that says, if you want to be saved, all you have to do is pray this prayer. All you have to do is come down, come down the line, come up to the altar, pray a prayer, shake my hand, get baptized, and then you will be saved. That's the kind of preaching we hear in this area, in the pulpits of this area, in this country, we hear that kind of preaching, that salvation is merely a verbal assent. And the question is, right, the question for us, if you are in Christ, the question for you is, is that really all that salvation entails? Is salvation only a verbal assent, an acknowledgement To go back, right, Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? And just as a hint there, if we're talking about the name of the Lord. When we talk about name, we're never just talking about a word that we call somebody, right, an identification of someone. We're talking about their character. When we come to the scripture, right, when we talk about the name of the Lord, we're talking about God's character. So if we call upon the character of God, that surely should have some implications for us. So, so again, we, this is important for us. This is essential for us to understand, uh, especially as we as a church try and be obedient to the Great Commission, as we go to the community around us, and as we tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, Here's here's the thing. We will come across many people who will say, oh, yeah, I was baptized in such and such church. Oh, yeah, I prayed a prayer one time. Oh, yeah, I walked down the aisle and I went up to the altar and 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 I was a member of a church one time. And what is the question for us? Here's my concern as a pastor. I don't care whether or not you walked an altar. I don't care whether or not you were baptized. I do care if you were baptized or not. I'm a Baptist after all, but. When it comes to salvation, I don't care about those things. What I care about for your sake, and for my own sake, by the way, is are you really saved? Do you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And does that show in your life? I don't care if you like me or not because of that. I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to be obedient. Now, granted, when I say that, I also don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be offensive to be offensive. And that shouldn't be our goal either as a church, right? We're not here to be offensive. But the gospel offends. And we will offend people by saying, you know, you say you believe in Christ, but nothing in your life shows that you believe in Christ. And when you stand before the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment and he he says of you, who are you? And he says to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then you'll know in that moment, your verbal assent meant nothing. 
because it had nothing behind it. Right? So that, that's our concern. That's our concern. That's the question of faith. What is faith? What is the implications of faith? What does it mean to believe? And again, this is a difficult word for us because we might, might ourselves find questions. We might of our family find questions. We, we probably have family members. Every one of us, we probably have family members who give a verbal acknowledgement of Jesus, and yet you can tell by everything in their life that they know nothing about Christ and they don't love Christ. Certainly friends and co-workers profess Jesus but do no deeds. And rather we see the failure of faith. And so let's look at that next in verses 15 to 17, the failure of faith. And we have a, a, a specific example here. James gives us a, a specific instance of this. This isn't the only way that faith can fail, but here's one specific instance of this. James says, excuse me, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, right? He gives us this example. It's a hypothetical one, but it's grounded in reality here, right? A brother or sister is naked, right? Poorly clothed, exposed to the elements. It's uh, This would be, Someone who, you know, doesn't have the proper coat or robe or clothing uh, to keep them warm and safe and well. And lacking in daily food. Uh, the, the idea here of daily food doesn't seem to be just a day's meal. It's not as though they're just missing one meal in a day. It's not as though they're just missing uh, one day out of the week a meal, Right. We do that. It's called fasting, right? Intermittent fasting. We do those kinds of things. It's not what we're looking at here. The idea is daily food. They have no food. They have no means of getting food. So what happens to somebody who has no access to food and is exposed to the elements? They die, right? For those two things for long enough, for any period of time, for any severity of time, they die. So this is a brother or sister in Christ that is in desperate need desperate need and james continues and one of you says to them go in peace be warm and filled james says that the the kind of faith that he is warning about right is the kind of faith that is verbal only right this is a verbal acknowledgement for the one who is in desperate need, whose life is on the very line, what the, this, this one who just has this verbal assent with no works, with no implications of that faith evident. They just say, go, go on. Be warm, be filled. I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll give you a prayer that God would feed you or give you some clothing. He speaks words of peace and blessing, and yet he speaks just as he does with his faith. It's a meaningless and useless thing, right? That's what James says in verse 17. The kind of faith, listen to this, the kind of faith that sees someone in desperate need and just gives a verbal blessing and walks away is a useless faith. That's what he says. Verse 17 so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's useless. It's inactive. It's inert. 
But James isn't the only one to draw this conclusion because, again, we we sometimes, as we read through this, if you look at the kind of argument around this passage, you'll see uh, this idea that James is against the rest of the scripture. But this isn't the conclusion. And indeed, at that the first passage that we opened up our time together today was out of 1 John 3. And 1 John 3, 16 to 18, we, say, we see the same situation and the same conclusion that James makes here. By this we know love, 1 John 3, 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Listen to John's conclusion. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John has the same conclusion of James. A love that is word only isn't love. And indeed, if you say that God's love abides in you and your love is verbal only with no deed, with no truth, it's a useless love. And indeed, it may call into very question the nature of your relationship to God. He says, don't just speak love, act love, do the deeds of love. And what John talks about in love, James talks about in connection with faith. To have faith in God is to have love of God. And that love of God must be living. A vital faith is a loving faith. A good faith produces good works. But faith fails to be faith if there are no deeds to go alongside of it. Indeed, faith without works, James says, is necrotic faith. And what do you do if your finger starts getting necrosis? Your foot starts getting necrosis. You cut it off because it's dead and it'll kill the rest of the body uh, otherwise without it. And also just for your fun Greek grammar word of the day here, right? That This word dead is necros. Necros. It's necrotic faith. Indeed, we might say it this way. Faith on its own and works on their own are both useless They don't accomplish what they are intended each to accomplish. But James isn't done arguing his point, and neither are we, so let's continue on in our passage. We've got a lot to get through, so let's get getting through it. Verses 18 and 19, the truth of faith. Let's continue and see the truth of faith. Again, verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And James kind of poses that there's this imaginary opponent who steps up and answers James' statement about a dead faith. And this opponent essentially says this. Listen, James, James, you're you're making a lot of fuss about this. But listen, one person can have faith. They can have a profession in Christ. And listen, another person can have good works. One person has faith. One person has good works. And that's what that's. You know, that's fine. That's good. That's, that's, that's salvation. The one guy he says he's saved. Yeah, he's saved. The other guy, he has works. 
a fruit of salvation, yeah, he's saved too. Come on, James, you're making too too big a deal about this. But the the logic is that the logic of this opponent's statement is that faith and works don't have to go together. We can have two Christians, and they're both equally Christian, and they both receive eternal life. One of them has good works, and one of them has faith. That's what his opponent is arguing for. But James retorts, show me. It's like the irritating uh, statement that your math teacher always makes. Show me your work, right? I want to see how you got there. And sometimes you can arrive at the right conclusion, but the wrong way. That's why you have to show your work, right? James retorts, show me your faith apart from your works. Try it. But how do we show faith? In works. That's what he says, right? That's that's what he's concluding. I will show you my faith by my works. Listen, you can say that you believe in Jesus all the day long. You can profess to be a Christian. You can say many things, but you will never prove the truth of your faith by a mere profession alone. Right? To say it more simply, you will never prove that your faith is real by verbal, you know, by words alone. You can't do it. And indeed, we might ask, as the Apostle John does, does God's love abide in such a person that only speaks love? And listen, we know this to be true among our relationships with one another. Your spouse can say all day long that they love you, but if they never prove it, can you really conclude that they love you? If they never serve you or do good for you, if they never listen to you, do the things that they do, uh, do what they ask of you, right? If they, if they never show love, but only speak love, is it love? You can speak words of loving friendship and loving fellowship. But if all you ever do is say to another person, hey man, I love you, and you never prove it, you never sacrifice for that relationship, you never go out of your way to do anything to serve that other person in love, empty words. So my encouragement to you is don't speak I love you unless you really mean it, unless you're willing to put the work in for it. And that applies to a spouse, right? That applies to a marital relationship. If you're, if you're dating someone, that applies to your dating relationship. And that applies to your friendships. Don't tell your friends you love them if you don't mean it. Don't be a liar, right? Don't bear false witness. Because you can speak words of faith. You can speak words of love. But until you do something about that verbal profession, What can we presume other than that you don't mean them? To underscore this point, James continues, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. And uh, we have a a manuscript difference here that we uh, should note. There, There are two kind of phrases here. You believe that there is one God or you believe that God is one. Uh, so they're similar in nature, but different in meaning. And so we might ask, which should we prefer? And probably God is one. And the reason for that being, uh, it's likely James has in view the Shema 
or that, that Jewish confession of faith we find in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following. I'll just read Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So probably that's in mind. God is one. The Lord is one. And to the one who confesses this, James writes, they do well. He says that you do well. You, you confess the truth of God. You're doing well. You have good doctrine. You're doing well. We need to be true. And we need to be accurate about what we speak about God, what we think about God. We, we need to have uh, a good understanding of the nature of God. We need to believe in the truth. right? We need to confess the truth. The statement of faith of this church needs to be true. Faith must be based in the truth. Faith to be faith must be confession of the truth. But again, James' point is that a true confession of faith that does not lead to action is of no good. Because look it, you want to know who, some, who are some of the most orthodox confessors in this world? The demons. The demons are orthodox. They have good doctrine. They know the truth. And it's not just because James is saying it, but look, for instance, at Luke 4, 33 through 34. Luke 4, 33 through 34. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't that interesting? Everyone around Jesus wouldn't confess Jesus as the Holy One of God. Even his own disciples struggled with that on some points. But here it is. A demon confesses the truth. The demons believe. And what is what of it? What does their confession lead them to do? To shudder. To shrink back in fear. Uh, interestingly, Douglas Moo in his, in his commentary in this passage suggests that maybe James is using a bit of irony in suggesting this. At least the demons shudder. Your faith does nothing. So maybe he's turning this as an ironic phrase here. The demons at least have a shudder go up their spine. You don't even move. And yet you say you believe in the same thing they do. There is great danger in thinking that just because you have a good confession of faith, that that's all you need. The demons have a good confession, and on the day of judgment, they will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. They will be judged for their evil ways. Their profession of faith doesn't lead to orthopraxy. Right? We know orthodoxy, that's right doctrine. Orthopraxy is right practice, right, right conduct. Their profession merely leads to them to worry about their future. And there are churches who have great statements of faith. There are Christians who believe in the great confessions of faith that have been passed down through the centuries. But they also have no works. Theirs is a lifeless confession that makes no difference in them or around the world, in, in, the, in the world around them. This must not be so, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would ask of you, if you profess in Christ, what about you? How do you prove the truth of your faith? How are you showing the truth of faith? 
Let's continue in our passage. Let's see fourthly the examples of faith in verses 20 through 26. The examples of faith. Uh, James continues, You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Uh, James belabors his point because uh, his readers need to hear it and because we need to hear it. Right? We're belaboring this point because it is essential to our understanding of salvation. We need to hear this. We need to believe it. We need to act upon it. And so he grounds, James continues, and he's, he begins to ground what he has been saying in the examples of the Scripture. And so he asks here, right, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, you fool, that faith apart from works is useless? And also just, again, as a fun uh, play on words that James does, he does this sometimes in his letter. Uh, the last phrase, works is useless, in Greek is ergon estin arge. Right, ergon arge, so very close. So essentially, what he, what we might say is that faith without works doesn't work. That's what he's saying here, right? Faith without works doesn't work. And just a fun wordplay because I'm a, it's the kind of thing I do. Okay. But on to the first example. He gives the example of Abraham. Right? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works, justified by works, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And here we run into why this passage is such a thorny issue in the side of, of scholarship and Christianity and, and the church and so on. Because we run into, if we know the works of Paul, we, right, we run up into a brick wall because what James says here seems to directly contradict what Paul says in the book of Romans. Romans 4, 1 through 3. So listen to this. Look at, look at this verse. 21 and James, and then we're going to compare to Romans 4, uh, Paul's work, right? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, forefather, according to the flesh? Listen to this. For if Abraham was justified by works, was not Abraham our father justified by works? That's verse 21 in James. Back to Romans, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here we have it. We have a contradiction in the scripture. Uh, I'm going to close my Bible here and just walk out that door and never look back. Is that what we should do? No, right? Uh, we, it takes a little stretching on ourselves. We have to get into the context of both James and Paul to understand what's going on. Why, why does it seem to be a contradiction? Uh, though, right, it's not. First, we have to remember that both James and Paul are writing to different audiences with different purposes. So the purpose of the letter of the book of James, the purpose of the letter to the Romans are different. They're written to different people. We know that, right? Who did Paul write to his letter? To the Romans, not to the Christians in and around Jerusalem. Right? So, so different audiences, different purposes. James is writing to counteract a current within the church that says all you need to do is have a verbal profession of Christ and you can make it into heaven without changing a thing. But that's what we're arguing for. That's what James is saying. But what does Paul write Romans for? Well, he's writing and arguing for the defense of the gospel. And we know at this point he has encountered many teachers who have come into the church and have said, unless you are circumcised, unless you follow all the law of Moses, you can't be saved. 
So, right, Paul is writing to push back against that teaching. Secondly, we have to remember, and I hinted at this here, right, that both James and Paul write at very different times. So when they write is different. James is likely writing very early in the history of the church, probably sometime in the middle of 40 AD, so in the middle 40s. Romans is likely written some 10 to 15 years later. So one of the first things we have to understand is that James is not responding to Paul, right? James is not writing this letter. He hasn't just gotten in the mail the the letter to the Romans and started going through and going like, Paul's got it all wrong. Let me write a, a redaction, write a response here. Let me get this out and let's circulate this and let me show how wrong Paul is. Uh, and we know that James doesn't think Paul is wrong because if you look at Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, right, James agrees with Paul. He, he sees the truth of how the Gentiles are to be saved and brought into the church. Right? So they're not arguing against each other. They're writing at different times. Third, we have to realize that very likely James is using the word justified or righteousness in a different way than Paul is using it. So they're using the same word in different ways. And we can ask, well, how is that possible? Right? We, we have that in our own language too, right? Where words can have shades of meaning. Again, we go back to the word love. We, we have one word for love and it's love, right? I love chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. I will not give my life for chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, right? I love my wife and I would give my life for her, right? So, so that's the difference, right? We use that same word, but in very different ways. Uh, so that's just, uh, just an example. Uh, James is writing before the corpus of Pauline works. James's use of this word justified is, is through, written through the lens of the Old Testament and the, and the words of Jesus. And when we think of the word justified, what are we viewing that word through? Paul. Right, We know Paul's works, and we are probably more acclimated to them than we are to the Old Testament. Uh, and so we use that word in the sense that Paul uses it. But James doesn't use it in that way. Uh, for instance, we could go to, just to see that this, this meaning, this word can, can mean differently. Uh, Matthew 12, 36 to 37. Matthew 12. 36 to 37, Jesus speaking, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so we have to ask uh, there, if we take Paul's meaning of the word justified and bring it into what Jesus is saying, is Jesus saying here that your words are what are going to save you. That if you never speak a careless word, you're saved. Is that what Jesus means? Certainly not. No, right? How do we know that's not what Jesus means? Because if it was up to us, how many careless words have you spoken this morning? Or in the last week? Right? If it was by what we say that we're uh, saved or not, oh boy, none of us are saved. 
right? So, so this meaning of this word justify can be different. Uh, and also, I'll just, that's a spoiler there too, because we're going to be back in that passage when we start to look at the issue of the tongue in chapter 3. Uh, but we'll continue on. We're not there yet. Um, Calvin, he writes on this verse, uh, explaining the difference here, right? So, so listen closely. Calvin explains it this way. Paul means by justified the gratuitous imputation of righteousness before the tribunal of God. And James, the manifestation of righteousness by the conduct in that before men, as we may gather from the preceding words, show to me thy faith and etc. So in other words, Paul uses it to describe the way in which we are made righteous before God. And James uses it in the way to describe the way in which we prove the imputed righteousness of Christ in us. So again, I ask, do we abandon the scripture? Is this a contradiction? We just throw our Bibles out and move on. Uh, No, we realize that there are two different meanings for different purposes, for different times. And so the proof of Abraham's righteousness, right? The evidence, the example that James uses here, right? Abraham's faith was made evident in his works. And notice there that it says works. This is more than one. Uh, Abraham was tested. And each test, uh, he evidenced the work of God in him. And each test, and the, the highest example of that, right? The highest test of that was his sacrifice of his son Isaac. Uh, so we, he uses that, right? Was not Abraham our father shown to have the righteousness of God in him by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? We see the proof of Abraham's salvation and his obedience to God, even to the point of the sacrifice of his own son. He was saved and then he did good works. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, as we'll see, right? He believed God and so he was obedient to the commands of God. And indeed, uh, we have to see this, right? Uh, uh, Hebrews 11, 17 to 18 kind of re-echoes what James is saying here. Uh, By faith, Hebrews 11, 17 to 18, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why did Abraham act to sacrifice his son? Because of faith. He had faith in God. And so he did good works. He did obedient works. And so uh, James here concludes in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Notice what James is not saying here. James does not say works were completed by faith. The order of operations is faith were perfected by works. Faith was proved by works. Faith comes first and then comes works. Or to say it the way Paul does in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But listen to this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right. That that verse that we go back to in Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. We're not saved by works. 
But we are saved for works. We are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. And the scripture was fulfilled, verse 23 of James. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? Abraham believed that was the basis for God's declaration about him. God was at work in the life of Abraham. Abraham trusted in God. And so as a result, Abraham strove to be obedient to God. And the second phrase here we have, and he was called a friend of God. That's not a direct quote as the other is, uh, but it's probably a paraphrase. And you could look at Second Chronicles 27, Second Chronicles 27, or Isaiah 41, 8. Isaiah 41, 8. Both have this suggestion that Abraham was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James concludes, a person is justified by works, not by faith. And that was a test there to see if you were listening, because that's not what James says. That might be what we conclude that James says, but that's not what James says. What does James say? What does he write? He writes, A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What is he saying? Given this discussion all all along, right? Everything that we have talked about. James is saying something to the effect of this. A person proves his right relationship with God, not by mere profession, but by being obedient to do that which God commands. Right? It's fundamental. Faith and works cannot be separated, right? The imaginary opponent that that James is dealing with says, you have faith and I have works. Uh, One person can have faith and another person can have works. What James is concluding, no, that can't be. There is only faith and works. Can't be separated. If you have faith with no works, your faith is useless. If you have works with no faith, you're condemned under the law. But if a person has faith and shows it by his good works, well, that's a good faith. He continues, gives us another example from the scriptures. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab, if you remember, uh, the people of Israel coming, marching into the promised land, taking it. Uh, the spies go into Jericho to see what that city is about, see what's going on there. And Rahab says, she confesses, I've heard everything that you've done. I've seen how the Lord God has been with you. I fear. And so I'll protect you. And so she does. She acts upon that fear. She believes in God. She believes God is who he says he is. And she acts. She believes God and is saved. And because of her belief, she acts. And just by way of reminder, she enters into the lineage of King David and thus King Jesus by her faith. And we might ask, why Abraham, why Rahab? And probably these two um, are linked together in Jewish tradition, or at least certainly, well, we see that later on as, as time progresses. These two are often linked together. Uh, further, there may be a link in that what James has in view, especially uh, when we talk about works in this issue, in this passage, are works of charity, works of mercy. 
um, because we see first off, right, he talks about the brother or sister that is destitute, uh, naked, and lacking food. Uh, that that should, right, an expression of that should be to go and to help them, uh, just in much the same way that Abraham and Rahab show show charity, show hospitality to those who come into their lives. And again, compare such hospitality with the sin of partiality at the outset of the chapter. Right? The church is acting inhospitable to the poor man uh, because they want to elevate the rich man. So, so again, there may be some link here uh, for that. And then James makes the conclusion in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James repeat what he has said, but he gives us another image for it. The body apart from the spirit is dead or useless, right? A body without a spirit is what? A corpse. What does a corpse do? Stink, I guess, right? That's that's about all it does. Uh, bloats up. If you've seen right the deer on the side of the road, they bloat up, feed feed some creatures, and that's about it. Doesn't move, does it? Body without a spirit is a corpse. So too, faith without works is useless. Faith without works is what? A corpse. So now that we see the argument, we need to put some pieces together here for us. What do we do with this? The issue that James is dealing with in our passage seems on face value to contradict with Paul. But James is uh, writing that salvation is on on the face of it, right? On the face of it, James seems to be writing that salvation is by works and not by faith. But that's not what he says, right? Uh, or at the very least, he is maybe suggesting we might interpret this. And I think there are some who do that suggest that saving faith has to have works for it to be saving. In uh, something like what the Roman Catholic Church mandates, right? You have to believe, but then you also have to do these works. And if you don't do the works, right, you're, you're dead. And there's specific works there. Uh, so do we have to do good works in order to be saved? Is that the gospel message? No, it's not the gospel message. And I don't think that's what James is arguing for here. I want to, it, it takes some uh, thought here, but it, it would go against the entire tenor of the scripture. How are we saved? By God's act, right? By God's work, by the Holy Spirit, not by us, not by our works. What then does James mean? He's highlighting for us the necessity of faith to produce works. For faith without works is a useless, lifeless thing. And listen, this goes along with what the rest of the scripture says. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does Paul say there? As you have always obeyed, there's obedience. Huh. So now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do something with it. For it is God who works in you both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Obedience to God. Isn't that interesting? Paul says there, faith produces works. Or the words of Jesus 
In John 14, 15, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those are the words of Jesus, right? What, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you love me, you'll verbally assent your love, period. Right? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or the Apostle John, 1 John 4, 10 through 11. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who loved us? God loved us. Why do we love? Because God loved us. Beloved, if God so loved us, what? We also ought to love one another. The love of God, if we understand the love of God, it puts an implication for us, right? We have to love others. Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, there's that word obedient again. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What's my point in all this? James is not saying anything unique in that sense, right? He is only repeating what, Everyone else in the scripture does say that if we say we believe, if we understand the love of God for us, if we say God's love abides in us, if we say we are a believer in Jesus Christ, then that has implications for how we live. We cannot merely verbally assent to belief in Christ and do nothing with it, because if we do, that verbal assent means nothing. Indeed, even Martin Luther understands this point, and it's with some irony that he writes uh, in the preface to his uh, commentary on Romans, because Luther really did not like the letter of James. He called it an epistle of straw. I mean, right? It was it was a worthless thing. He didn't want it. Uh, half didn't want it to be in the Scripture, and yet listen to these words he writes in the Book of Romans. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Isn't that what James says here? You talk and talk about faith and good works, and yet you know neither faith nor good works. So, brother and sister in Christ, do good works. Be about proving the truth and vitality of your faith in Christ by being about good works. Show your love for God and your love for your neighbor. Fulfill the royal law. Contrary to so many in our day who claim to profess Christ but live as the world around us does, profess Christ and live as Christ does. And never, ever confuse this or forget that you do good works not to earn your faith, but as Abraham perfected. You do works, you follow the commands of God not to be saved, but because you are saved. When you fail to do the good works you should do, repent. 
Confess to God the truth of your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I would ask you to consider today, if you were brought before a court, could you prove your faith? Or do you only have words? Do you have works to show that the truth of your faith? And if you don't have works to to prove what you say you believe about Christ, Again, confess that to God. Repent of it and ask him to instruct your heart. Some of you hearing this may, be, may just have a mere profession of faith. You may have made a verbal ascent. Again, you may have walked an aisle, uh, gone to an altar, prayed a prayer, was baptized, became a church member. You may have taught a Sunday school. You may have done many things. You may have right doctrine. And good job on having right doctrine. But don't think that confessing Christ stops there. The demons confess Jesus as the Son of God, but that doesn't save them. If you have no works, if your faith doesn't motivate you to do anything, then you really need to stop and consider what James is writing here. You may be found to be like those who... Uh, Jesus says we'll come in to him on the day of judgment. They'll say, Lord, Lord. Right? They have a good confession. They'll say, uh, perhaps even, you know, didn't we do these, these things? And he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so you will be cast into the place of eternal punishment. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in God. And truly let that belief in God motivate you, change you. Do, you. do you realize that? Faith in God changes you. Faith in God has to change you. If you have an encounter with the Holy One, you will be changed. You see it over and over in the scripture. Go to Isaiah 6, you'll see it there. Isaiah sees the Holy One. And what, is, what does he do? What does he say? Woe is me. I am undone, right? Faith changes you. Christ changes you. The Spirit changes you. And if there is no change in your life, go to God and and confess to Him. Say, Lord God, forgive me, for I have failed to believe the truth because it's not evidence in the way that I live. Do that today because... If you fail to, you won't be saved. You aren't saved. Your faith is useless. And what do we do with useless things? Dispose of them. A good faith produces good works. Some of you don't believe at all. Some of you hearing this may have no faith at all. You don't profess Christ. And for you, the end will be your eternal judgment. Understand that. There are many world religions, but there is one true religion. There are many who say they know the truth, and there is one uh, there is one scripture of truth. There is one word of God, and it's not found anywhere else. And how do we know this? How can, how can I make so bold a claim? Because we see its evidence in history. We could go there. But more than that, we see the evidence and the truth of what it says about every person on this earth. No other religion can explain the, the reality of sin. 
we have a Savior who was here on this earth, who lived and died and rose again. If you go and stand before a holy God right now, who spoke this word to you, who brought you to this moment here today to hear his word and you ignore it, that is to your own peril. God will judge your sin and God will judge you. And there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. There's no verbal, magical incantation. And there is no amount of works that you can do that can save yourself. Because even the best of your works are tainted by sin. Sin, uh, the dark tendrils of sin are wrapped so tightly around you and are so integrated in you that everything you touch is stained with sin. But Jesus Christ... The Son of God came to His creatures, stooped down low and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He lived the righteous life you were created to live but never could. He died in the place of sinners on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for sin. He rose from the grave to the defeat of sin and death, vindicating His words and His works before the whole world. And He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, the place of authority, awaiting the day when He will return and call His people to His side. And those who are not at His side to be cast from His presence His good presence forever to only suffer the right wrath that you ought suffer for your rebellious, sinful ways. And you, if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, if you confess it truly and believe it truly, then you too can be saved. You can have eternal life. And a true confession, as we've seen in our passage today, leads to right practice. And when you are saved, you will begin to see the works of God in your life. You will want the things God wants. The the side of heaven, you won't be perfect. You won't always or perfectly want the things that God wants. But day by day, you will be conformed more and more to the image of His blessed Son. So repent. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ Jesus and walk in the grace of God from this day forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us for uh, too often evidencing not a good faith, but a dead faith. Father, for too often turning from that which we ought to. God, for too often being content with a verbal acknowledgement of belief in your Son that means nothing to the rest of our lives. God, forgive us. And Father, we pray that we would have evidence of that faith that you have wrought in us. (laughs) Father, as you have given us your grace, that we would live out your grace. As you have loved us, that we would love others. Father, that we would not get this wrong. That we would not misunderstand the doctrine of salvation. Lord, we confess that we are saved Holy and only by your work in us. It was your good purpose to elect us, O Father. It was the purpose of your Son to come to this place and be our propitiation, to bear the wrath for sin. 
It was your good purpose to give us your Holy Spirit, to regenerate and renew us, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, a mind and heart to believe and to understand. Father, you saved us. If we are saved, you saved us. We confess that truth this morning. But Lord God, we also confess the truth that if you have saved us, we cannot help but to be about good works. And so, Lord, we want to see the evidence of that. And Father, I pray this morning for us here, Lord God, that you would have mercy on us and that you would reveal to us the truth of our confession. And Father, if there be any here, Lord, even myself, God, if this is just mere profession, if all we have is a verbal assent, oh God, that you would bring such conviction upon our soul, even here in this moment, that we would do not else but turn to you and plead your forgiveness and plead the work of Christ and plead the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord God, that we would be saved and we would bring you honor and glory. And Father, for those who have no profession of Christ, for those who have no faith and they know it, oh God, have mercy. Lord, help them to see the evils of their sin. God, help them to see the pride that they have in their life, that they think that they are good when they are not. For Lord God, help them to see that such is folly and foolishness. Father, reveal to them the terrors of judgment to come. Reveal to them the depth of darkness of their souls. And shine the light of Christ Jesus upon them. That they would look to him and be saved. And oh, Father, as we go from this place, as your church, as we go, Lord, may others not question the truth of our confession of Christ. But Lord, may they see the evidence of it in everything that we do and say. Oh, Father, those good works that you have prepared for us beforehand, give us strength to meet them, a willingness to do them that you may receive all the glory and honor and praise. That they may see our good works and praise you, O Father. And it is to this end that we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your Son, He who is exalted in the heavens, He who is coming again, Amen.